Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin. I'm going to open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us, give us wisdom. Help those who are not here, be with those who are sick and hurting. Bless those who are traveling. Give us wisdom and grace as we spend time together. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue on uh, on a similar topic. We've been talking about sin. Uh, We've been focusing on terminology. Now we're not going to focus on terminology. We're going to focus on something else. But I've called the young people up front to help me with something. All right? Y'all need to help me. I, I need you to help diagnose a plan to get over a medical condition. All right? And then we'll have our medical professional right judge our plan all right because this will help i think intro an important point related to the topic of sin all right you ready for this let's say i go to the doctor and the doctor says uh you need to change things or you're going to get type 2 diabetes all right you need to do something about this all right type 2 diabetes all right so i'm gonna here's my plan all right and i want you to tell me what do you think of the plan? I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to exercise more, lift weights, okay? Two, I'm going to change my diet, all right? And I'm going to have a diet entirely made up of glazed donuts, okay? To solve my, to, to stay out of type 2 diabetes, I'm going to exercise and change my diet entirely to glazed donuts. What do we think about this plan? I don't think the glazed donuts are going to work well for you, bud. Do, I see do you have something wrong something with exercise? Do you have something against exercise? No. Uh, not really. I don't think it makes a difference. I think it's kind of... If, I think it's just really the glazed donuts here. Glazed, glazed donuts <laughs> are the problem. Th- those are going to be the problem. Okay, why? Sugar. Why? Wow. Not only sugar, it's carbohydrates. Right? Sugar is a form of carbohydrates. It's converted to sugar faster than anything. Why is this a problem with type 2 diabetes? Why? It's a medical condition. Okay. Why? Like, what is. For some reason, the cells in your pancreas have a harder time uh, creating insulin. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll take care of the sugar. The sugar gets too high, either your your blood doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. And your muscles are more sensitive to insulin. You could go in the shop, you to insulin, in the shop right? and die, yeah. mm-hmm. and your blood sugar gets up to around 400. Okay, now let's check in with the medical professional. What do we think about this diet? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> what? Not, not a good idea, right? Okay. And the reason we know, like if I would have said something like a um, keto diet or something like that, there probably would not have been, some people might go, that's weird, but <laughs> there would not quite have been as much backlash because specifically the, the nature of type 2 diabetes, all right, and very large amounts of sugar and carbohydrates, those, the, the nature of the problem, all right, does not handle that many carbohydrates. Actually, those are related. 
this is all to point out two things. One, if you've got a problem, it's best to understand what the problem is, all right? And if you understand the nature of the problem, then you can better judge the nature of the solution, all right? That's one point of that example. The other point of that example is that sometimes some people will get part of the thing right and part of the thing wrong, all right? And just because part of it's right doesn't mean everything's right, all right? This is very common, all right? Just because part of the thing is right doesn't mean the, everything else related to it is correct in terms of a treatment plan or how to solve a particular problem. So those two things. You need to understand the nature of the issue, and you need to make sure all the things related are correct, not just part of them. And don't let the partial correctness say, all right, everything's good. Let's start with Genesis chapter 3. You would turn there. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. 3. 3. Genesis 3. We're going to talk today right, about the nature of sin. All right? Not the terminology. The nature of sin. All right? What it's like. And specifically, based on that, try to come up with right, a potential solution to the problem. All right? The Bible has a lot to say about this, as you would probably expect. Genesis chapter 3, setting the scene. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. There is no sin in the world. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? So this is the introduction of sin. And one thing we're going to find in our story, and um, this is also relevant when also talking about sin with certain other groups of Christians, right? We'll find that once, that for, in, for sin to be introduced to humanity, an evil agent from the outside had to introduce it. In other words, a devilish figure. But what we'll find after this is we no longer need these people, these creatures, to sin. Sin comes from us, primarily, not from demons or the devil. Okay? So, in this particular case, we've got Adam and Eve in a state of not sinning. Something brings sin in, right? Satan comes and he tempts Eve, all right? And Adam and Eve sin. Now let's look at the consequences of that, starting in 14. So they ate, and God confronts them in the verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise is healing. So, enmity is created. All right. In this particular case, it's between the serpent and the woman, or the devil and mankind. All right. So, enmity is created. 
sin brings in something that messes up, in other words, relationships. All right? Messes up affections, messes up the mind and the heart. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So then even within man's relationship to his wife, then once again, messed up emotions, messed up relationships. There's a problem. All right? It's not just you did a thing and therefore you pay a fine. Something has changed fundamentally. Something has really changed here. And to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the ultimate result of this is death. Now, this is our first sin in the Bible. Let's look at the next few sins, all right, just to see what we can see about the nature of things. So, very next chapter, chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived in both Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, so we see a problem. All right? We see a problem. Cain has done something wrong. All right? Cain has done something wrong, but that's only part of the problem. All right? Because at this point, all right, things could have been fine. But they aren't really. Notice what he says about Cain there. That very last verse, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So there's something in Cain, all right, already. There's something in Cain that is messed up in him, all right? It is something that he could fight against, all right? He could rule over it, it says there. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in other words, already here in chapter 4, we've got the idea that sin in a person, all right, is more than just a, he had bad ideas, all right, more than just a mistake. Already in, this is the fourth chapter of the Bible, we've got this idea that sin is sort of personified, and there's something corrupt inside of this man that wants to rule him and that he must fight against. How does it go? Well, in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel 
and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So in other words, Cain had an issue. Sin was there trying to rule over him, and it won. And so Cain murdered Abel. All right? If you look at just Genesis chapter 3, you might think, okay, women and men, they're going to have lots of conflicts. But at least we're going to be fine. All right, we're going to be totally fine because we're bros. All right, that's not how it actually worked. Sin did a lot of damage to the heart of man, and you see here in chapter four, all right, Cain is messed up, so messed up that sin can rule over him that he would kill somebody. Where does it go from there? Uh, let's jump ahead to chapter six. This is uh, right before the story of Noah. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay? This diagnosis, all right, we think about the sequence here. We've got clearly messed up relations in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we see there's something corrupt about mankind's nature at that point. There's something deeply corrupt. So that sin could rule over him and, in fact, him lead him to murder. And now we've got, generally speaking, mankind, all right, generally thinking, dwelling in evil continually. And what does God choose to do? Well, he chooses to save Noah. All right, he chooses to save Noah, brings a flood, kills many. Now turn to chapter 11. This is after the flood, right? This is after the flood. Now that we're after the flood, everything's going to go better because we, a bunch of bad people wiped out, so everything's going to be totally fine. So chapter 11, you get to the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's the problem here? What explicit command did God give Adam and Eve that they are at this point denying? Right. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. All right. That means make lots of babies and then spread out. Right. This is, I mean, people generally look at this as building a tower. It's a pride thing. 
the, the more explicit command they're really dealing with here is God said multiply and spread. And they said, no, we're going to multiply right here. Right? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I mean, you're limited. If it's just one person or two people, you're very limited in what you can accomplish. But actually, if you get like a city together and like large groups of people together to work towards the same goals, you get a lot more done. Right? There are certain things you can do with that that you can't do as an individual. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. There, problem solved. Disperse them over the face of the earth. They said, we'll get together in Mesopotamia. And God says, no, you won't. All right? Why, why am I bringing this one up here? All right? A few reasons. One, all right? We've got a command. God gave a command, be fruitful, multiply on the earth. They are explicitly denying the command. All right? So in other words, knowing what to do, is not necessarily relevant to whether, or not necessarily connected to whether someone will do what they're supposed to do. There's another piece to it. Knowing is a very important part. The other part is doing the thing you know. Okay? And they are explicitly not doing that. Now Cain and Abel, did, did Cain have an explicit instruction not to kill Abel? We don't know. It doesn't say that. There's no, there's no you shall not murder at this point. Right? But his heart all right, was corrupted, and therefore he did it. All right. Here, they know what they're supposed to do. And then they are just going as a group, saying, no, not going to do that. We're going to gather together so that we don't get spread all across the earth. The other thing to bring out of this here is that sin in large groups all right, is relatively easy and in some ways easier to do than in small groups, right? Sometimes we call it groupthink, all right? You could also just think of it as the development of culture. Cultures in large groups to develop and they promote sin. This is a very normal thing within humanity. So in other words, you can't make some sort of judgment and go, look at all the people, they're all doing it, it must be okay. All of those kind of determinations are flawed as of this chapter, all right? Before this, we've got, we don't quite have this sense of community. Let's get together. Here we have a sense of community all doing exactly what the Lord does not want them to do. Therefore, God says, no, you will spread. And he confuses your language. So the number of people saying, hey, this is okay, is not actually relevant to the question of, is this thing okay? All right. That's why I wanted to bring up that one. So now here in chapter 11, we, I mean, by this point, we've seen a number of things. All right. Sin came into the world by the devil, but that created a corruption in mankind. All right. That created a corruption in mankind. It led to murder. It led to problems of on the inside, people thinking evil all the time. That was the Noah thing. And that it even led that to such a way that society could organize itself in such a way to be directly opposed to what God wants. 
all right? Not just individuals, the whole thing. They can all get together and say, let's all collectively disobey God. Something that happens a lot. So how do we solve it? Well, this goes back to our medical condition, all right? There's, you got to look at the thing, all right, and make sure all the elements are taken care of, all right? Now, in the case of the Tower of Babel, let's take that as, as an example, right? In the case of the Tower of Babel, they had an explicit command. So in other words, they knew what they were supposed to do. Did that solve their problem? No, it did not solve their problem. Is it good for them to have a command to follow? Yes, okay, so having the knowledge is there. So in other words, instruction is required, but not sufficient, right? Because there was another problem. It wasn't just that they, they lacked knowledge. They didn't lack knowledge. They knew that. Um, what they lacked was a heart that was willing to do it. So in other words, there's something deeply wrong in man. And if you think about, all right, yourself, and if you think about the people you know, all right, you'll see this. All right, you'll see this. All the time, I have the intention to do a thing and then ultimately lack the willpower to do the thing. This happens to me now, all right? Maybe none of you, this definitely happens to me. Sometimes I know the right thing to do and then you know what? I don't do the right thing. It's almost as if God said, sin wants to rule over you, and you, and you, you need to not let it, right? All right? Just like I said to Cain, sin wants to rule over you. You shouldn't let it happen. So you need instruction, but you need a way of solving the fact that there's something deeply wrong with you and there's something deeply wrong with me, all right? So if you're going to come up with a solution to the problem of the fact that there's evil in the world and that there's sin, it's got to handle both, all right? Because some people will approach sin as an educational problem. Well, if we just teach people to do the right thing, they will ultimately do the right thing, all right? And this is certainly false. Here's a biblical example, all right? The nation of Israel, all right? God gave the nation of Israel a law. And what is a law? A law is a set of instructions. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do that. That's a law. The law helped make clear what was sin and what was not. All right? Before that, people could often figure it out just by the nature of the conscience and things. But the law made these things clear. All right. And if we think about Old Testament history, all right, what was ultimately the result of that? Well, they had the law, but more often times than not, if you read the story, they're not following the law. So in other words, the instruction given, all right, was not sufficient. All right. The instruction given couldn't really solve the sin problem. And so you get ultimately, you've got a period of Joshua, and sometimes the Israelites are righteous in Joshua, and then sometimes they're not, and it goes bad. In the, in the book of Judges, uh, it's a 
continuing cycle of the Israelite sin. And so God punishes them. And then God's, then they cry out, give us help. And so he sends a judge, and they're relieved. And then they forget about it, and they sin again, and so forth. All right, That's the period of the judges. And then you get to the period of the kings. And David is good most of the time. Solomon is good some of the time. After that, most of the time, they're bad. All right? When the kingdom splits, the northern kingdom, they're always bad all of the time. And so God sends the Assyrians and exiles them in 722. The southern kingdom is bad most of the time, but not always. You've got Josiah and Hezekiah, all right? Uh, but ultimately, no, they all also must fall. Now, God, knowing everything, all right, knows and even reveals in the Old Testament that this is a problem and that it must be solved, all right? And it even tells you how he's going to solve it, sort of. We get a clearer picture in the New Testament, but let's start in Jeremiah chapter 31. So remember, this is this right here is specifically to people that God has instructed on what is right and what is wrong, all right? And they have already failed for a very long time, for hundreds of years. Jeremiah what? Jeremiah 31. So God has given them instructions, and it's not... It's not sufficient, right? God notices. God notices. Jeremiah 31, 31. Okay? Reflecting on the problems, essentially, of the old of the uh, Mosaic Covenant. Behold, the days are coming. This is verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God here is saying, okay, this is, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not like the one, the Mosaic covenant, the one where you had all sorts of instructions. Do what you need to do. For this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So you've got God's... God doesn't come here and say, I'm just going to give you a whole new set of rules, or I'm just going to clarify these rules so you'll be better, because that's all it, that's all it takes, is if you just know what to do, you will do it, all right? And we know experientially that none of us work that way anyway. I mean, we all know things that we should be doing that we don't do, right? But that's not what God does. God says, all right, it's going to be different. I'm going to put it in you, all right? Instead of it's just external rules, I'm going to put it in you. Let's look at a different prophet's take on this same idea, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. 
Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Pause. What's our historical circumstance? The historical circumstance at this point is um, the nation, both the northern and southern kingdom have already been taken into captivity. They are under judgment by God at this very moment when he does this, all right, when he says this. And, and uh, what he's saying is um, it looks, it, if you're God's people and God sends you into captivity, it looks bad for God, all right, because your God lets you go into captivity. And I will vindicate, verse 23, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Okay, so that's pretty significant, right? That a group of people that were conquered and taken into exile to other places hundreds of miles away, that God would say, all right, I'm going to take you and bring you back, all right? I'm going to show you that, I'm going to show the world, all right, that I, in fact, am doing this because I'm going to do something that doesn't make sense to everybody else, that nobody would see coming. I'm just going to say... You were all scattered. I'm bringing you back together. All right? And then it continues. Right? And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, that you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people. And I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. All right? And it continues. So you've got in Jeremiah a... We're, just, we're not going to just reshuffle the rules. I'm going to take my commandments and stick them in you. All right? That's what Jeremiah said. I'm just going to stick them in you. In Ezekiel, different words, same idea. All right? I'm going to take your stony hearts. In other words, there's something wrong with your heart. All right? I'm going to, I'm going to rip it out. All right? And I'm going to put a new one in there. All right? It's not stony. It's better. All right? And I'm going to put my spirit in you. So in other words... There's something wrong with you, all right, which we all know anyway, but here God's telling us there's something wrong with you, and I'm going to fix that thing, all right? And it's not just about more rules or just trying to decide what to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to change you, all right? So this is stuff in the prophets. This is stuff in the Old Testament, all right? What about the New Testament? Let's jump ahead. Matthew chapter 15.
There were rules around here in Matthew 15. This is the context. There are rules around cleanliness, all right? And that if you're going to eat, you should eat in such a way, such a way that you will not be defiled, right? You ingest food, and you need to do that the right way so that it doesn't defile you, all right? Jesus is going to debunk that notion, right? But also talk about something here that is extremely relevant to this whole problem of the fact that well, you'll see it. So, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, that they do not wash their hands when they eat? He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain. Do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men? All right, let me explain real quick. So you've got... The problem with the, there's the commandments of God, and then other people laid traditions on top of that, right? And what some people were doing is, is they were using these traditions as a way of avoiding actually doing the commandments of God. Like, for example, all right, let's say, all right, my parents need to be taken care of, all right? Let's say my parents need to be taken care of, and, um, and they're like, Eric, help us out. We're, we're old. And I'm like... Sorry. Sorry. I know, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to do that because I, I promised, uh, I said I was going to use this, these funds for, for, for something else. So, Sorry, parents. I'm not going to do it. Therefore, I'm okay because let's say I'm, I'm going to give all my money to this charity. No, I'm sorry. They're, they're do, that's a good cause. That's a really good cause. Sorry. Not going to do it. Uh, that would be disobeying the commandment to honor your father and your mother. All right? Uh, we should do that. And so I've chosen to give my money to a nonprofit or something. Um, that's what's going on here. That's, that's the nature of the disagreement. Um, and by the way, you should wash your hands before you eat, not because of a religious requirement. Because children are filthy, dirty creatures. <laughs> Verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth and defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a person. All right, so he just flipped it on its head. They're like, if you eat in such a way and it goes in and it can follow you, and he's like, you got it exactly backwards. It's exactly the opposite of what you just said. All right. So now it goes in and what comes out that defiles you. Then the disciples came and said to him, because they clearly did not understand this, do you know that the Pharisees were offended 
when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has now planted will be rooted up. <coughs> In other words, that's them. All right? Let them alone, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to them, Explain the parable to us. They're mad, but the disciples, they don't get it. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? And what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So what Jesus is teaching here is not the things that go into you that really defile you. What defiles you is the things that come out of you, all right? And this goes all the way back to the whole, you know, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel problem. There's something inherently within the heart of man, all right? And when you see sin coming out of someone, all right, when you see sin coming out of someone that's coming from within them, that's not something external to them. So in other words, that's them, that's their nature. It's their nature coming out, all right? And that, and Jesus says here, that is in fact what defiles a person. Not what they're eating. It's that sinful nature doing evil deeds of slandering and so forth. Okay? We still need a solution. All right? That one, we read that one just to talk. I wanted to take us back to that idea of, okay, the sin nature is within man, and that Jesus identifies here. All right, that the problem is not sin coming into you, but sin being generated by you into the world. In other words, man is the problem. All right. But let's end with the solution. John chapter 3. the story of a man who is, I think, afraid and confused. John chapter 3 at the beginning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and he's coming by night, probably to avoid notice, right? This is the fear of him. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, not understanding, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born 
of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, I've given you a human metaphor. If you don't understand this, then if I go away from the metaphor to the real thing, are you? why do you think you'll get it? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We should connect this to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All right? God, I mean, the Old Testament lays out in quite long detail and examples of there's a deep problem with man. In Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, all right, and others, right, Isaiah, and so forth, they start laying out, okay, something's coming, where God is going to solve this problem, all right? And it's not just a give you more instruction way of solving That doesn't solve it. All right. It's necessary, but not sufficient. All right. Necessary, but not sufficient. So we're solid. Now, Jesus here is talking about the solution. All right. What needs to happen? And using different terminology. Same idea. What must be happen? Everyone must be born of the spirit or verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 4, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Notice there's, there's, a, there's a love there, right? People love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. There's a love of the evil there. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the solution, all right, to the problem of the sinfulness of man, right, is not just more instruction, but also a, a fundamental change, a fundamental rebirth, all right? That is ultimately the solution. And how do you do it? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? It's believing in the son. Right? It's faith in Jesus that solves this problem. So if you run up against people in the world who are like, yeah, we, let's make the world better. Let's just make sure they all know what they need to do. All right? It's a fundamentally flawed approach. All right? We should instruct. It's very important. But it's a fundamentally flawed approach. It won't work, ultimately. It doesn't solve the real problem. All right? 
It doesn't solve the deep set, all right, sin ruling over people that Cain struggled with, all right? It, that doesn't solve the fact that people tend to evil, and so therefore in the time of Noah, everyone except for Noah was thinking evil continually, all right? That instruction doesn't solve that problem because that's a heart problem, all right? And instruction clearly did not solve the problem of Babel, right? Because they knew what they weren't, what they were supposed to do, and they just, as a group, said, "We will not do it." Instruction won't solve that. Ultimately, it's got to be a new birth that does that, all right? And this new birth happens ultimately through faith. So don't look at sin as just a "don't do this, don't do that." Sin is a corruption of the self. That must be solved. And so, if you really want to solve the corruption of the self, you got to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem for each of us is ultimately us. We ought not to blame it, all right, on anything else, all right. If you've got sin issues, all right, don't blame it on those around you, all right. You're the one, all right. It's in you that you can solve this. By faith in Jesus. That's what this says here. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. And they would experience that rebirth. So that's that's God's big plan, all right, to solve the sin problem. Though that's not even the end of it. There's more of it, and we won't talk about that today. All right? Something that will come in later, in the future. All right? But this is how he's... This is his plan to solve the whole sin problem, all right? For us. Believe in Christ, all right? Receive the new birth. Receive the Spirit. That's the beginning. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we're going to talk more about, okay, when you do that, what are practices that we can do on a practical level to help avoid sin? I hope we'll get a chance to do that. So believe in the Son. Amen. Believe in the Son. Let's be dismissed. Grady, will you please pray for us? Will you please pray? Father, thank you for uh, uh, this message. Thank you for uh, the clarity of it and how we can be instructed. Thank you for Eric's preparation. And we pray that you would. Uh, all of us as we go to the worship power, be with your messenger, and maybe learn more and be drawn closer and have a heart closer to you and thanksgiving and love and compassion uh, for others and help us to uh, be doing exactly what you want us to do. In the